Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. The show is up front. My name is Brian Edwards Teeker. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to the latest developments in the world of COVID 19. Uh, our guest, your guide, Dr. John Swartzberg, clinical professor emeritus of infectious diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Uh, I thought the news we should start with today is news of the response. On Friday, the World Health Organization declared an end to the global public health emergency created by COVID, uh, which is not the same as an end to COVID, but more, as I understand it, the end to any coordinated international response to it. Uh, what What's the significance of the official declaration? I think there are a couple of major points. One is, as you pointed out, it's going to end a lot of the coordination that took place uh, between countries. And it will also have an impact on distribution of, of some goods between countries um, in, re- in reference to COVID. The, the other is, and I think perhaps the most important, is an acknowledgement that things have changed with the pandemic. And we can't keep living in a state of emergency. Unfortunately, I think it conveys to a lot of people that the pandemic's over, and the WHO did not say that um, purposefully uh, because it's not over. Um, so it does give somewhat mixed messages to the to the world. But, you know, if you look at uh, not the absolute numbers, but just the relative numbers, during the height of the pandemic, we were seeing worldwide reported um, 100 thousand cases a day. Um, now we're seeing 3,500 cases a day. So there's, again, these numbers are, are somewhat fanciful in terms of how accurate they are, but they do reflect a dramatic decline in the number of cases. I'm sorry, I said per day, I meant per week. Um, they do reflect a dramatic decrease in the number of cases worldwide. So I think it's fair to say that we've got still a very significant problem where a lot of people are still dying, but it's nothing like it was during the height of the pandemic. But this is kind of the the paradoxical thing of it, right? We, We partly have that steep decline because of the coordinated international response, like a unprecedented level of data sharing early in the pandemic, uh, Chinese researchers releasing a fully sequenced genome of the coronavirus, uh, unprecedented speed for development testing and then deployment uh, vaccines that could attenuate it. It, it seems kind of like, you know, uh, getting rid of the things that helped you solve the problem to, to suddenly shut off the tools for rapid international cooperation. 
That's right. It's 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 a it's a nuanced issue. On the one hand, you want to convey that things really have changed and they're going in the right direction, and there seems to be some degree of stability looking in the rearview mirror, some degree of stability with the pandemic worldwide. On the other hand, the real fear that everyone has is that people are going to immediately forget that there's uh, what we've been through and what we still could be going through in the future, and we're going to lose a lot of the momentum to really handle not just this pandemic, but the pandemics that surely are to follow. So that it's a, again, I said a nuanced issue. It's trying to really find that pathway between these two poles to convey that things are better, that we don't need to be doing the same things we were doing before, perhaps, but we do need to be doing many things that going forward are going to be necessary to handle future challenges. What about the potential for a resurgence of COVID? We, we have seen infection rates drop at many points in the pandemic, only to rebound when a new variant or subvariant emerges. Yeah, everybody has to be extremely humble when they talk about what this virus is going to do to the human, to the human population. No one knows what will happen. Will we see the next Greek letter in the alphabet, which would be pi, a completely new variant that would be even more transmissible and, God forbid, more virulent, that is, make us even sicker? Uh, that would be really disastrous. There's nothing, there's no law in nature saying that that will not happen. When, when I talk to and read about uh, what evolutionary virologists are thinking in regards to this, most people think that the chances of pi occurring in the next two years are somewhere between 10 and 20%. Now, to some people, that may sound like a very low chance, but to to me and to many, that seems like a very high possibility, a 1 in 10 to 1 in 5 chance that we would have a new and more virulent um, uh, uh, form of this virus. So that's, that's where we are right now. Um, we're in a position where we don't know what the future is going to bring. We think the next months ahead of us are going to be stable. Certainly people are acting like the pandemic is pretty much over. And um, and we've lost a lot of our eyes on the ground, and that is case counts are no longer being uh, done by the CDC. So we really don't know what how many cases are occurring. Um, there's just no way to get accurate data now that most diagnoses are being made by the rapid tests. So we've lost really that parameter Fortunately, we have wastewater data that looks good right now and has been looking good. We still have hospitalization data and we still have death data, which are lagging indicators of what's happening. But bottom line to all of this is we don't know what's going to happen in one month, three months, six months, or two years. Possibilities, the people who know a lot about this estimate 10 to 20% in the next two years. All right, let's get on to our listener questions. Uh, if you have a question for Dr. Schwartzberg, the phone number is 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008 for your corona calls. Uh, I'm going to start with one from the inbox while our listeners take to the phone lines. Lavinia, who did not mention what city they are writing from, said, recently an acquaintance told me they use Enovid 
nasal spray as a mask alternative. Have you heard of this? What is your opinion of it? Yeah, there there are a variety of uh, uh, products that are being promoted as uh, comparable to wearing a mask because you spray something in your nose that would block the virus from landing on a receptor site. There's a little bit of science to back this up. It's very premature to make any claims like that, and I think that would be a very risky thing to do. That said, um, when, when you look at the phase one, meaning very early scientific studies, on products that could block the virus from attaching to a receptor site in our nose and throat and therefore preventing infection, um, while it's mostly fanciful at this point, there is some science behind that. It's worth pursuing because it could be a very powerful tool in protecting us. Um, right now, I would urge Lavinia and anybody else who is using these products to feel, feel free to use them, of course, but I would use them with an N95 mask. Mm. The, the theory of it would be it, it, if there is only kind of a small band of tissue that the virus lands on that is susceptible to infection, if you can somehow coat it with the barrier, you are then protected? That's the idea. Um, and it's and again, it has some science behind it, but it's much too premature to advise people to use that to protect themselves. Okay, next question comes in from a listener who specifically asked to remain anonymous. They are 58 years old and not immunocompromised, thus ineligible for the current round of boosters which it sounds like they would very much like to get. <laughs> and they are wondering if there is a health risk to, to getting the current round of boosters uh, not being on the eligibility list. What would the downside be? There's really no downside. Um, <clears throat> we, we have an, an enormous amount of data on the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. The decision made to have a particular cutoff age which was higher than 58, was really made just on a statistical basis that somebody 58 is at lower risk than somebody 68 from having a bad outcome if they get COVID. And where the cutoff point seemed to be is right around 65. So that's where the line was drawn. But it's an arbitrary line in many senses uh, because a 58-year-old is at greater risk than a 48-year-old. Um, so... I understand that somebody 58 would would like to get it. Uh, the emergency use authorization right now through the FDA and, and, and the CDC's translation of that uh, really says that you have to be a certain age or be immunocompromised to get it. All right. Hopefully that uh, answers her question in a useful way. Uh, let's go to the phone lines. We'll start in Sebastopol where Peggy is on the line. Good morning, Peggy. Um, Oops, you're on I, the air uh, now. Good morning, Peggy. Good morning. Hello. Can you hear me? Sure, Ken. What's your question? It's about, um, I'd like to ask Dr. Schwartzberg uh, if he doesn't mind saying what he personally, he's about my age bracket, um, does now uh, now that this post announcement is is are you still wearing a mask when you go into stores? Are you still wearing a mask 
when you're inside a house with other people. Um, I wondered what your mask, if your masking protocol has changed, and I'd just like to hear what it is. Thanks. Sure. I don't mind telling you what I'm doing, but I, I'm going to preface it by saying that I, like everybody else, um, in, uh, in the process of reevaluating how careful I want to be. Um, to put some background to that, I mentioned earlier, we really don't know how many cases are occurring. Um, but I think there's still a lot of virus circulating. Just this, in the, within the last week, I've talked to uh, two couples who um, got COVID traveling. I've talked to several students who've gotten COVID. So there's a lot of virus out there. What we're not seeing as much, thank goodness, is hospitalization and death. And we have access to medication like Paxlovid in case we do get sick and we're at higher risk. So that's those are the ingredients that are going into my rethinking, what am I going to do? So currently what I'm doing and what I'm planning to do is when I go into the grocery store, I'm wearing an N95 mask, RKN95. Um, when um, I'm indoors with other people, uh, for example, I was on campus in, in the School of Public Health um, a few days ago, and um, I think I was the only one wearing a mask there, but I wanted to continue to wear a mask because I wanted to protect myself. <clears throat> so I'm indoors, I am wearing a mask. When we get together with other people, we usually dine out. And when we dine out, we eat only outside at this point. We're not comfortable, my wife and I, eating indoors yet. Um, so that's generally speaking where I am. We're, we're hopefully going to be visiting my daughter back east, um, my daughter and her family. Um, and when we fly, we're, we're going to have an N95 mask on in the airport and on the plane the entire time. So I'm still being very careful. I really just don't want to get COVID. Yeah. I mean, the kind of anecdote about infections, I've heard about more infections like in my friend and family network over the past month than probably at any prior point of the pandemic. Uh, none serious, luckily. But <laughs> it certainly suggests uh, there are a lot of opportunities for infection out there. Yeah, and that's exactly where we are right now. It, this is, you know, it's very comforting to know if you get COVID and you're up to date with your vaccinations, um, and if you're in the in the criteria group for uh, getting Paxlovid, if you get sick, the chances of you getting really sick are very very small now, and the chances of long COVID are significantly reduced, not to zero certainly, but they are significantly reduced compared to someone who's not vaccinated and didn't take Paxlovid. So um, the the real risks that we were facing not that long ago are much less now. And that, that does prompt a reevaluation. But I think so many people now have reevaluated their – they've done the same calculus and they've said, you know, it's just not worth um, living with precautions anymore. And I think that's playing a role in a lot of people getting reinfected. I was at a, a memorial service last night, uh, hundreds of people indoors. I was masked the whole time. The invitation to the memorial service had asked everyone to home test ahead of time. And a friend who was going to sing with the choir there tested positive that day. So she had to stay home. Uh, 
if she had not taken the test, she would have been infectious, unmasked, with her mouth pointed towards an audience of hundreds uh, while <laughs> projecting everything in her lungs to the best of her ability towards them. Um, it just seems like there's there's a lot of opportunities for spread out there. Yeah, there sure are. All right. Uh, next on the line, we have Mo in San Francisco. Good morning, Mo. Good morning, and thank you for this program again. I have a question about the waning efficacy of the booster. I was about to, last time I got my booster was in October, and I was about to get a booster when I contracted COVID. Uh, I, I'm on day 10. I've tested negative uh, a couple a day ago, and I'll try to get another test today. The home test was negative, so I had to get the PCR test to find out that I was positive uh, when I had symptoms. The home test was negative. My question is about the waning efficacy. So I was about to uh, get the booster. I got COVID instead. Uh, I'm planning to take a trip in September uh, to Europe. Uh, will I be able to get a second booster in August before I take the trip or not? Hi, Mo. I'm sorry you got COVID, but I'm glad you're on the mend. Um, before I answer your question, let me just comment about the home test. Your experience with the home test being negative, but then you did the PCR that was positive, this is not unusual. The, the um, home tests are very good if they're positive, but there are a tremendous amount of false negatives, particularly early on in the course of illness. And a lot of people are thinking, because COVID now feels very much like a cold or a bad cold, Exactly. Um, yeah, a lot of people are thinking, well, it, you know, I tested negative, it must just be a cold, and they go on with their daily activities. If right. you test negative with the home test, um, it still could be COVID. Keep testing and pretend, and not pretend, assume you do have COVID. Um, or do what you did, and that is get the PCR test, which is more and more difficult to find. Um, but is much more sensitive and is going to pick up something that the home test misses. So I, thanks for leading me into that. I wanted to make sure everybody heard that. Um, in regards to waning immunity, we have pretty good data now um, on waning immunity. Um, we have very good immunity after the vaccine or after being infected for the first one month, two months. At roughly the half-life of our immunity, at least the antibody portion of our immunity, the half-life of that is around three months, meaning you're about half as protected to three months after you got vaccinated or uh, had the infection than you were at the point you got vaccinated. Um, and that at six months, it's again half of that. So half of at three months, you still have pretty good immunity, not very good anymore against getting infected or getting mild disease but good immunity against really severe disease. At six months, you still have some immunity, pretty good still with against really severe disease, but um, still quite susceptible at that point to getting reinfected. So coming to your scenario now, you've, you've, you've now had a booster. This infection was your booster. You've got what we consider to be the best immunity we can get, and that is a combination of previously being infected and being vaccinated roughly at six months so that would take you to september would be about five months or four and a half months from now i think um 
you will be eligible for getting, if you're 65 or over immunocompromised, you will be eligible for getting the booster. And frankly, it, uh, uh, in the fall, it doesn't matter what age you are, everybody's going to be eligible for the booster. So you could get it before the trip to um, to Europe, and that might be a good idea so you don't have to come home with COVID. Dr. Schwartzberg, the, the fall booster, will that be an updated formulation targeted at, at newer subvariants? Right. So, again, I want to emphasize that um, the fall booster will be for everybody, uh, not just for who could get the interim. And the answer to your question, Brian, is nobody knows at this point. There's a lot of discussion about instead of it being a bivalent booster, the current booster consists of um, what's called BA.5, Four or five, which is part of uh, the Omicron family, and it consists also of the ancestral strain. There's a lot of talk about getting rid of the ancestral strain, the one that the vaccines we got up until last fall, uh, because it may not be adding as much as we'd like. Um, there's also talk about adding something further to the BA.45 portion of the vaccine. Um, right now, we're seeing a lot of this. Um, these subvariants called XBBs, and we may that may be included. So we should have an answer to that question in June. Um, the FDA advisory committee is going to be meeting again. The CDC is going to be meeting again, and we should have an answer because the the mRNA companies Pfizer and Moderna need at least two months to produce the new vaccine. That, um, that's not very much time, frankly, to do that. It's pretty remarkable, but they need at least two months. Mm. All right, Dr. Schwartzberg, we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Take care. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. Or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. I appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.